This is Isaac Morehouse. Welcome to the podcast where we discuss education, entrepreneurship, big ideas, how to put them into practice in the real world, and above all, how to live free. Today, we are going to talk about immigration. And my guest is Alex Tabarrok. Uh, Alex is a professor of economics at George Mason University. He's the Bartley J. Madden Chair in Economics at the Mercatus Center, uh, where he's he's a research scholar there. He's also a blogger at Marginal Revolution, which is a phenomenal blog and one of one of the best, uh, most popular economics blogs out there. He's the author of some pretty um, widely used introductory economics textbooks, uh, modern principles, and excitingly, uh, among many other things, he's got he's got a long uh, and distinguished list of, of accomplishments. But he is also the co-founder of Marginal Revolution University, which is a really cool online platform um, where he and uh, Tyler Cowen, who who also blogs Marginal Revolution, they have all kinds of great content for learning economics from the very basics to more advanced stuff. Um, and today. We're going to talk with Alex about immigration uh, because he wrote a phenomenal piece in the Atlantic not long ago, The Case for Getting Rid of Borders Completely. So, Alex, welcome to the show. Great to be here, Isaac. So um, before we get into the topic of immigration, I always like to, to know a little bit about my guests and sort of how they ended up where they are. What got you interested in economics first, and then sort of the issue of immigration. Uh, and I know you're also interested in competitive governance and things like that. Kind of what was your your journey to end up where you are? Well, I grew up in uh, Canada, actually. And uh, I was a uh, Rush fan, the band uh, Rush, you may know. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I got into, I, I, I had the kind of family where there would be lots of debates at the uh, kitchen table uh, with my parents, my father in, in particular. And we were debating about the uh, value of rock and roll. And I pointed out that, you know, Rush had cited this philosopher, Ayn Rand, I said. <laughs> <laughs> having Never having read anything by this so-called Ayn Rand. But I thought, look, this is, this is, I can at least make this argument. That was your and, trump card. They're philosoph yeah, yeah, they're exactly. the philosophers. Yeah, yeah, yeah philosophy and, and rock and roll. And my mother said... Uh, Oh, yeah, you'd probably like her. <laughs> and I felt guilty that I should read uh, who I would later learn was Ayn Rand. So I read some Ayn Rand and that got me into economics and, uh, you know, that I went to university and so forth. And the rest is history. And, and in the particular areas, so I know that you do um, a lot of work on health, uh, the FDA and problems with the FDA, some stuff on different governing structures um, but I've heard you speak and write at least a few times on immigration. What sort of what 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 sort of helped you determine what areas of economics were the most fascinating to you and where you wanted to put your energy? Well, uh, you know, I see economics as everywhere. So I, I'm, a, I'm I feel very blessed that I'm in one of those fields where I can take a look at something and say, oh, there's some economic principles there. I'll write about that. I'll write about this. And that's what how marginal revolution you know, came about. We can write about things every day on immigration. I mean, this is especially in the news uh, right now, obviously, with the refugee crisis. And you see uh, these refugees from from Syria and from elsewhere, you know, trying to cross the Mediterranean, uh, drowning, 
uh, trying to come to a, n- a new life and having such great, incredible difficulties and travails in, in trying to get there. And, you know, it leads one to ask the question, well, why? Why do we have these borders to begin with? You know, how is it okay that uh, we can put up these walls, put up these borders, arm them with, machi- with men with machine guns and say, no, you can't come in? You know, what sort of world is that in, in, in which we use violence to uh, uh, keep people out when all they want to do is voluntarily trade with us? Yeah, it's, um, it's one of those issues where, and I know as like economist proper, your field is, is you know, sort of non-normative, but this is one of those issues where the moral component is so undeniably in, in our faces because the, the position many people have on immigration is so different than the position they would have if nothing was changed except for where somebody was born. Like I, I can't imagine anybody, you know, forcibly preventing someone from going to the grocery store or to a job interview. Um, but suddenly everyone feels that there's no, you know, no moral compunction about doing that if someone's born on the other side of an imaginary line. It's a very, it's a very, it's an issue you can't, it, I find it very hard to not get into the moral component of it. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, and it is a very peculiar issue in exactly the way that you said. So, for example, people say, uh, well, you know, the immigrants will take our jobs, right? And let's just put aside whether that's true or not for the moment. What kind of argument is that? Uh, if you th- think about the, uh, let's call her the, the, the cheerleader mom, and the cheerleader mom wants her daughter, you know, to win, to win the contest. So she goes to the daughter's competitor and uh, puts holes in the tire of her car, right? <laughs> you know, or, 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 or worse, you know, uh, uh, you know, chains the uh, competitor, you know, uh, uh, to the car so that the competitor can't move. I mean, we would denounce such a person. We would say such a person is horrible. Yeah. And yet, uh, if the competitor is from a different country then it seems fine for people. People seem willing to accept that it's okay to put up walls and okay to force them out and not let them compete. So, yeah, I agree with you exactly. There seems a very peculiar disconnect between how we treat people solely dependent upon where they were born. And that doesn't seem right. Yeah, I, I okay, so I want to I wanna go over, I kind of see the objections to um, this, this really radical case. And I want to deal with the most radical case. I find it the most interesting and it crystallizes things, the case for essentially completely open borders. And I think the objections as I've heard them boil down to basically four things. There's an economic objection, a security objection, a culture objection, and then sort of a democracy objection. So I want to kind of walk through these and just get your response to these. So, so first being, the economic objection. If we have open borders, this will be bad for the economy. This will uh, lower standards of living and lower wages and, and be a bad thing. What's the what's the response to that objection? So overall, the economics is, is quite clear that this would be a massive gain in world GDP. So economists have calculated as best as we can, and it looks like a completely open world, which perhaps is unrealistic, but it's useful to think about the sort of ideal, the end case. A completely open world will double world GDP. So that means a doubling of economic output, not just in one year, but in every year, henceforth into infinity. So it's a huge increase uh, in wealth. And you can see that quite intuitively when you think about a immigrant from a poor country, say from Haiti, comes to a developed country like the United States, And look at what happens to their wages. Their wages double, triple, 
go up five, sometimes even by 10 times. So there's a massive economic gain from taking a laborer from where their labor has low value and moving that person to where their labor has high value. It's now, interesting. Yeah. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Go, so I was going to then just say, well, what about uh, the, the residents of the developed countries? Um, here, the gains also are positive. They're not as large as for the immigrants. So you can, uh, immigration is great for the immigrants, and it's good for us. So there are plenty of jobs uh, which go wanting in our country, which could be filled by immigrants. My favorite example of this sort of absurdity is to think about the supermarket. So you go to the supermarket today and there are these self-checkout aisles, you know, where we've <laughs> used all these computers and scanners and technology so that people can self-checkout. Well, there are thousands, there are, in fact, there are millions of people uh, in the world today who would be capable and who would like those jobs, who want those jobs. And indeed, thousands of people in the world are, are literally, they're dying to get those jobs, to come to our country to get those jobs. You know, it's interesting the the case, the difference between in people's minds, I guess, between goods and labor. And as as you know, sort of economic, the economics are the same, I guess, for free trade in goods as letting uh, people who you know provide labor move freely. And I I kind of maybe e evilly <laughs> tested this out one time. I was at I was giving a talk about. Uh, free trade or running through this exercise, this sort of trading exercise with with high school kids. And the whole point of the exercise is the, the broader the number of people they can trade with, the more value is created. Uh, and they have these little gimmicks and they can trade and, and things like that. And so you get to the end and I kind of lay out the case for free trade, that the, the more goods can flow to their to the place where they're valued the most, the more everybody wins. Everybody was totally on board. And then I ended it with uh, which is uh, no different in the market for labor, so there shouldn't be any immigration restrictions. <laughs> right. And the whole room exploded, and the entire Q&A was about immigration. Um, and it was so hard for people to see the same thing. Like if if it's bad for uh, a country's economy to limit the flow of high-tech washing machines uh, into their country, they're only hurting themselves, it's no different limiting the flow of you know labor. Right. Um, and in fact, we've done remarkably well on goods since the end of World War uh, II. You know, we've lowered tariffs throughout the world so that now goods do travel fairly freely. And you see these giant container ships, uh, globalization, moving goods all over the world. So goods can move freely. Capital can move freely. So, you know, you can take your money and you can move it around the world. You have, we have Bitcoin, which can fly around the world now today. Um, so capital is moving freely. The only thing which isn't moving freely is, is labor. And, and yet, in a moral sense, I think labor is the thing that we would most want to move freely. You know, voting with your feet, uh, moving to economic opportunity, having the ability to go from one place to another. Freedom of movement is one of the most important of all human rights. What would you say to the objection that, that would say, um, okay, sure, in a world of open borders, that'd be good for, for the economy, but it's not right now. So if one country opened their borders, it would be, it would be bad for them. They would just get this flow of the, the poorest people in the world and it would bring down their wages. And until the world has completely free and open borders, uh, no, basically no one should. Well, I do want to be clear that I want open borders for everyone everywhere. So, uh, you know, I would like to see 
Uh, we, we talk about you know Mexico and the United States. It should be easier for U.S. citizens to go down and live in Mexico. I think there are actually a lot of U.S. citizens who might like to retire in uh, Mexico if it were easier to buy property there and to move down to, to, to uh, Mexico. So, you know, I think there's arguments for both ways. Now, what about unilateral? Well, here again, the economics are, are, are quite clear is that overall, this is a gain to the economy. Now, then we come to issues such as to do with the welfare state. Okay. Um, and here, there's a legitimate, there's a, legi uh, a legitimate issue. We don't want to avoid that. Um, most of the people who want to come to the United States or other developed e economies, such as in Europe, they're actually young. They're actually workers. These people want to work. They don't want to go on welfare. There's actually not a lot of welfare that they can get, but they want to come here and, and work. So on balance, the immigrants who are coming here today actually tend to um, help the uh, welfare state. Um, because, for example, when they come, they pay Social Security benefits. Um, and especially, actually, if they're illegal immigrants, they pay Social Security benefits and don't get any. <laughs> um, so they're actually a net positive. Um, but I do think that's a legitimate issue. And then we ought to find ways of uh, dealing with that uh, issue. Let's say that, okay, well, you can't go on welfare for five or 10 years or something like that. You know, there are ways of uh, dealing with these problems if they turn out to be problems. So the security concern, what would you say to those who fear, you know, removing immigration restrictions will pose some kind of threat? Uh, let's say we're talking about the U.S., that that either more crime or criminals will be coming in or uh, there will be more scope for terrorist acts or something like that. What's what do you think is the is the response to that concern? Look, uh, <laughs> there's all. <laughs> If you're if you're worried about crime, well, there's already 300 million people here. Right? <laughs> um, so we have much more to fear from crime from the the people who already are here than from the ones who want to come in. And I mean that not first just as a numbers point. That is true. Um, but in addition, the uh, criminal rates among immigrants are actually lower than among the uh, native uh, uh, class. So you actually have fewer uh, criminals among the immigrants. Now, it is true that what happens is when the immigrants come in and uh, their kids then assimilate to U.S. ways, their kids are not as good as the original generation was. <laughs> so it's sort of unfortunate that they assimilate. Um, but they assimilate to the U.S. norm. So, look, uh, we have a to the extent that crime is a problem in the United States and, you know, crime is you know way down over the last uh, uh, 20 years. Um, but to the extent that crime is a problem, it's a, it's a problem not about immigrants. It's a problem about people. Okay, yeah. We have, have to be worried about other people, right? And uh, we need to have you know, policing and we need to have a good uh, uh, defense system and all that kind of jazz. But this is not about us versus them. It's really just about us. Yeah, you know, I've, I've always found it useful to try to apply the logic in uh, you know, state to state immigration to say, well, do you think, you know, I, do you think that I live in South Carolina now, we should be concerned about the fact that there's completely open borders with Georgia and North Carolina and criminals could just flood in at any time. Would, exactly. would it be a good idea to prevent that? Just, just to prevent people from coming in because some of them might be criminals. Um, 
And it seems pretty obviously a, a, not the way to, to promote security. So, so uh, you know, the economic argument, the economics are very strongly in favor of the huge, tremendous benefit um, of uh, open immigration. Security concerns are not anything unique to people moving across borders. Um, culture is something that I hear from a lot of people. Well, you know, this this country has its whatever country it is, has its unique culture and it's going to get watered down. It's going to get destroyed. This this is this is a terrible tragedy. Um, I I almost don't know what to say to that because I just I find it kind of appalling. But I don't know. What do you how would you respond? You know, people want to keep what they have, which I understand. And people are worried about change. Um, I think it's no accident that, you know, stasis people who want to keep things the way they are tend to be statists. Uh, they want to use the role of the government of the state to keep the way things are. And that itself is a cultural uh, issue. Some of us are just much more um, uh, accepting of change in our lives. Um, you know, in the famous phrase from the economist Joseph uh, Schumpeter, uh, which economists like, is the capitalism is all about creative destruction. Right. And economists often use it. Look, look at all the great creative destruction which is going on. The Silicon Valley is changing the taxi industry, Uber and changing how we live. And some people just get worried about that. They're just frightened about that, which I can understand. Um, I don't accept that. I don't uh, that I don't feel that way myself. Uh, I'm more on the dynamic side. I actually like when things uh, change. I think we're getting better. I think there's growth. I think there's progress. I think you, the United States in particular is the country in the world which is the most dynamic, which is the most open to progress, to change, which is the most, the country in all of the world which most sees the future as better. You know, every single president, when they come, they say, the, our greatest days are ahead of us. Well, that I think is true. And the reason why it's true is because the United States almost uniquely is open to change. And immigrants bring change. Yes, they do. So does technology. So do new ideas. You know, new books bring change. New ideas, new science brings change. Do we want to stop the scientists from working in the labs? That brings change, too. And sometimes people fear that. They fear genetics. They fear artificial intelligence. Uh, these things are just as fearful in some ways as people coming from other, other countries, maybe more fearful. And yet my faith, if you like, is that uh, in our capitalist system, in our system of freedom, that change is turned into progress, that this makes things better off. So I remain in favor of innovation and dynamism. Well, of course, that's easy for you to say with your bringing your hockey and ketchup chips to pollute this, you know. <laughs> no, I actually, I think that the analogy you made with ideas or the, the comparison there, that that's really powerful because to understand that if you want to limit change, uh, ideas are just as powerful a force as technology or immigration. And who wants to live in a world where we have a, you know, a star chamber that's got to put its imprimatur on every book that has a new idea in it for fear of, you know, disrupting the beliefs of, of the public. And I think that's a, that's a powerful way to sort of see the, the scariness, uh, or the undesirability of trying to limit cultural change. Yeah, that's exactly right. So I'm in favor of, you know, 
open borders for ideas, just as for people, right? A free flow of ideas, ideas moving around the world uh, is a powerful concept. And of course, ideas and people often come together, right? One of the ways in which we get new ideas is to have new people. And again, you look at Silicon Valley, it's a great example of this, of the number of entrepreneurs there from uh, India, from China, and, and, and so forth, who come to the United States, they develop their ideas, they sell their ideas abroad, bringing the world together. It's quite remarkable. You know, um, probably the one of the more interesting arguments I've, I've heard recently is one that I got when I shared your article. So um, I shared your article on Facebook, and I had several comments and I saw other people sharing it and almost all of the comments, they had this similar theme, which I found really interesting. And I think you will obviously as somebody who's interested in comparative sort of political institutions anyway, but it was this, yeah, remove all the borders and that will destroy democracy. And there's a part of me that's like, okay, good. <laughs> but, but, um, I'm curious you know, I think that's where people have a really hard time wrapping their head around. They, they don't know what it would mean anymore to not have borders. So so how would you respond to that objection that, well, we have democratic institutions and, you know, if you're somebody who's a fan of, of democracy and, and you assume that that's what's sort of keeping order, if this huge influx can come from some group who's opposed to that, they can vote themselves whatever they want. I mean, it's kind of similar to the to the welfare argument. You could, you know, get a bunch of immigrants that vote themselves more welfare and, you know, bleed everyone dry. Um, but what do you how do you respond to that to that fear that this will destroy democracy? So I don't think democracy is under any threat. Um, I'm a one of these people who thinks that Western ins I really believe in Western institutions. So I believe in democracy. I believe in capitalism. I believe in um, social egalitarianism, even if you want to call it, you know, cosmopolitanism. I believe in the power of Western institutions. And so I, I think that it's not that we need to fear the ending of democracy. It's actually everybody else in the world needs to fear the end of their system, <laughs> that given uh, competition that uh, Western institutions are going to be the ones who succeed. So I believe that fundamentally it is our ideas and our institutions where actually are the right institutions. And that if you look at you know, people in other countries, I think what they're saying, they often fear American culture. And I think they're probably right in some sense to fear uh, American culture, again, if they're stasis, um, if they want their culture to remain the same, because American culture, you know, rock and roll, freedom, individualism, these are incredibly powerful uh, ideas. Uh, when we saw in Tiananmen Square, for example, a couple of decades ago, the statue of democracy, right? So these I American ideas or Western ideas are in fact flooding the world. And so I don't think we have to fear uh, our ideas and uh, our way of thinking about these things, I, I think are incredibly uh, uh, strong. And uh, if anything, the rest of the world is going to become more Western and not the other way around. Yeah, you know, there's, there's an interesting almost case study, which is Hong Kong. Um, the, you know, once, once the British basically left there, you didn't see, at least to my knowledge, I could be wrong in this, the, the Chinese government didn't go in and say, let's, you know, let's screw this thing up. Let's change everything. Let's let's shut down the markets. Let's control it. Um, 
it was kind of, it was kind of, you know, you don't want to kill the goose that lays the golden egg when, when you see something working really well, um, it's people don't want to go in and destroy it. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, you know, people say that China took over Hong Kong. I believe actually that Hong Kong took over China. So, you know, if you were to come down and, uh, you know, compare, uh, China and Hong Kong in, you know, 1960, and then come back in 2000 and compare China and Hong Kong, and you didn't know anything about the politics, well, you'd say, yeah, Hong Kong took over China. China became capitalist the way Hong Kong uh, is capitalist. So that, that, tiny, uh, that, that uh, tiny breach in the Chinese wall actually was enough because of the power of these ideas to completely revolutionize China in a great way. Yeah, it, it reminds me of East and West Germany as well. Uh, you have this this great experiment where, you know, the more open society and the more closed society right next to each other. And nobody was trying to break down walls to get in <laughs> to East Germany. Right. right. <laughs> yeah, the, that I think that's a powerful recognition of, you know, whether the culture argument or the, you know, sort of democratic institutions argument if you have institutions and a culture that's strong and vibrant and, and truly is wonderful, um, you know, the more open and competitive the world, the market for those ideas and institutions, um, the, the better they'll do, not the worse. Uh, absolutely. Yeah, we have a lot to gain uh, by welcoming people. Uh, they, they, they bring their ideas, but uh, we have our ideas as well. And that intermix, we get a lot of powerful innovation out of that. So what do you think is, if you, like in a nutshell, what is the best argument for removing borders and immigration restrictions? So I think the best argument is just to think about what, what an, would an ideal world look like. And it's pretty clear to me that in an ideal world, we're all members of the planet. We're all on planet Earth, if you like, and we all ought to be able to move around and just move to economic opportunity. Uh, we shouldn't close off ourselves and shouldn't use, you know, machine guns and barbed wire and walls to close off part of the earth. We're all part of it. And we ought to be able to move around. That's the ideal. So I, I, I just want to have that get that picture in people's minds of the way we should be moving. It's not that we have to move there tomorrow and because we're not going to move there tomorrow. But just think, keep that ideal in mind. Yeah, I don't know if any research has been done, Alex, on because you talked about the economic benefits of if people can move freely, and I'm assuming that's that's primarily looking at the benefits directly of um, you know the economic value they can create going to a place where their their labor is more valuable. But I, I always wonder about on the cost side, the current system, the amount of of cost involved with something as simple as so I'm I'm going to uh, for a few weeks with my family to Ecuador in a few months coming up, and just the process like we have to go and get all these passports we have the, the whole process of tr even just short term travel uh, I've worked with students trying to get them to come in on fellowships and different things in the past and the visa process the the time the cost I mean you basically have to have a lawyer just the direct cost of all of that bureaucratic regulation, it's got to be mind-boggling every year across the world. Right. I, I think about the United States. I mean, it's the United States. Uh, so think about the cost that would be involved had we had internal borders the way we have external borders. So one of the things which made the United States great is precisely that we had a very large open market 
open for ideas, open for goods, and open for people to move around. So, by the way, this is not all uh, uh, thinking about an ideal in the future. Think about Europe today. So in Europe today, a worker from Poland can freely move to Great Britain, can, free, can move to Germany, can move to France. There is nothing stopping workers from these countries moving from one country to the other. In fact, the a common market in Europe, I think, is one of the great human accomplishments of the last uh, you know, half century. It's a remarkable achievement to take this continent, which for hundreds of years people were fighting and killing one another in world wars, and now... German workers can move to France and can move to England and so forth. It's an incredible uh, achievement and something which we should um, be sure not to lose in this temporary fear of uh, refugees and immigrants. We shouldn't allow that great accomplishment to be destroyed by these momentary fears. I've heard people say that, even in the case of Europe, people who, who worry about uh, further centralization of government institutions that would say, you know, the more sort of the more local the institutions and the governance, uh, the more accountable, the, the, the better and the more central and far removed, the worse. So is this is this going to, you know, sort of removing borders and restrictions on people moving here and there? Will it lead to some sort of massive one world government? And is that more prone to, to tyranny? I don't think so. Um, so I'm not against different cities, provinces, whatever the case may be, countries having different rules and regulations and letting these compete. What I am against is stopping people at the border from coming in. So here's an example, which uh, we're increasingly moving to, actually, is virtual communities. So a lot of people are spending actually a lot of time in these virtual communities, and they're quite different. You know, uh, World of War is different than EVE Online, uh, quite <laughs> different communities, and yet people are free to move between them, right? There's, uh, you can choose. Do you want to be in World of, War, World of Warcraft, or do you want to be in, you know, a commander in, in EVE Online? So I think that's an excellent example, actually, of how movement between communities doesn't destroy the uh, uh, cultural capital of these communities, but in some ways can be uh, a way of uh, creating a, a cultural capital. So despite all of the, and this seems to always increase around election times, all of the sort of anti-immigration rhetoric, are you optimistic about the direction things are heading globally in terms of reducing restrictions on immigration? So I think uh, Jim Buchanan, uh, famous economist, um, you know, he said that he was sort of pessimistic when he looked to the future, but he was optimistic when he looked to the past. And I think I'm the same way in that when I think how far we've come over the last, let's say, 50 years since the end of World War II, we've actually done, I think, very, very well. So we have, as I mentioned, reduced global um, barriers to goods. You know, uh, tariffs have come down. We have much more free trade. We do, in fact, have much more movement, uh, again, since World War II, particularly, as I mentioned, in Europe with the common market. That's a great, great uh, achievement. So when I look how far we've come, I'm very optimistic. Uh, when you look to the future, you know, of course, you see these you're more you're more likely to focus on these momentary Donald Trump and, uh, you know, uh, th th these these ridiculous kind of uh, fear mongering when we have a uh, election. 
Um, on the long term, however, yeah, I think I am optimistic. Um, I, I, I think, again, I have faith in the ideas of Western civilization. I think the ideas of Western civilization are strong and they're only going to get better as they expand around the world. Okay. So, uh, this is, this is going to ask you to, to speculate wildly into the future, but do you think it's more likely that, uh, legal, you know, laws and, and restrictions, institutions that are preventing immigration will get removed or that technology will make the need for people to physically move from one place to the other less and less relevant. And, and I'm thinking of things now you can see sort of hints of this, um, you know, take somebody in Indonesia who just can't move to the United States where there's great employment opportunities, for example, because of, because of the restrictions. Um, but with the advent of, you know, cloud computing and all these things, they can now, the job can be moved to them. They can have a job as a bookkeeper for an American uh, U.S.-based company without ever moving. Do you think the increasing sort of move of things like e-citizenship and online communities and, and trade uh, via you know, digital mechanisms will kind of make the need to physically move less relevant? I hope so. I mean, that would be great. I, and I agree with you that we do see some signs of this in certain areas. Though when you look, people still like to be together and there still seems to be a big economic gain from being together. So we're increasingly um, moving to cities. You know, the world is becoming more uh, urbanized. Uh, so you might think that, you know, new technologies would make us all want to live, you know, in the bucolic countryside or something like that. But in fact, that's not that's not happening. People are moving to cities. And I do think that there are simply places in the world which are just not well suited to mass economic activity. And so if you have to be born in one of these places, you have the unfortunate chance of have been born in a desert, sometimes a literal desert, sometimes a figurative desert because of bad government policy or something like that, then leaving is just simply one of the only ways that you can become, uh, you can have a better life. Um, Michael Clemens has done a great uh, study on Haitians. And if you ask, well, where, do, where are the rich Haitians? And basically, the only Haitians which have a decent standard of living, 90% of them live in the United States. So what that tells you is the only way that a Haitian can have a moderate, you know, normal American-style standard of living is to move to the United States. It's not going to happen in uh, Haiti. So I do think we are still going to need people to move around. Alex, thank you so much for taking the time to, uh, to talk with us. Can people, is it best to go to Marginal Revolution to find your stuff? Sure. That's always a good place. <laughs> Alex Tavarock, uh, professor at GMU. You can find the article we referenced um, at The Atlantic, The Case for Getting Rid of Borders Completely. And you can find his writings, uh, his blog at Marginal Revolution. Check out Marginal Revolution University. And uh, thanks again for taking the time. Thanks, Isaac. Great talking with you.